The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Thank you, Charlie. My name is Kevin Cirilli, and I am the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by our all-star policy panel, Bloomberg political contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Sean Zeno. I got to say, since it's Friday, I'm feeling a little relaxed. Maybe I shouldn't say this. Never in, in my life did I think that I would say I am awaiting an interview for a secretary of a, a cabinet secretary, Jeannie, to enter into a Zoom room so that I can conduct the interview. And I am. But that's where we find ourselves on this Friday, after this beautiful Friday afternoon. We are awaiting an official of the United States government in this pandemic to enter into a Zoom room so that I can interview the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. Just some color on this Friday, Jeannie. It's so true, Kevin Surly, and I cannot wait because I am so excited to hear all the things you have to ask him <laughs> because I have so many questions, and this is not the top one, but as you know, he is starring in a new documentary that's coming on Amazon made by one of my favorite, uh, most favorite documentarians who really made a beautiful movie, and his movie is called Mayor Pete. They made Boy State as well, so... Uh, you know, there's just one little thing. It's not at the top of your list. I understand you're much more serious than that. Right after the but, gas tax, <laughs> I'll ask right. him about the... <laughs> I, it is Friday, though, as you said. So I'm just excited to hear what he has to say. I love this. We should have we should have had our we should have done this before. Uh, Rick Davis, uh, you know, but seriously, uh, all kidding aside. <laughs> Sorry, Kevin funny, and though. Rick. No, I love it. No, but all kidding aside, I mean, here we are tonight awaiting for the House of Representatives to pass their stimulus bill after the Senate parliamentarian just ruled ain't going to happen with this with this minimum wage hike to be included in there. And that, that's no laughing matter in the sense that for millions of Americans who, who were eager to know whether or not they were going to get uh, a, a, a wage increase over the next couple of years. But it also has substantial policy implications over the next uh, six to nine months, especially if uh, uh, Secretary Buttigieg wants to pass an infrastructure package and they have to raise things like the gas tax or, dare I say, the corporate tax rate. Yeah, I think that it, there are a lot of questions that uh, this passage tonight by the House of Representatives uh, is going to raise when this package, uh, $1.9 trillion package, gets to the Senate. As you say, uh, the the wage increase is almost dead on arrival. It's been judged to be not meeting the, the budget standards, so that portion of it will be lifted out. Uh, what are they going to do with the money that was uh, applied to that? Uh, there is talk uh, by Ron Wyden to find a different alternative, maybe tax corporations that wages aren't up to a certain level. Uh, I think that debate's going to get really hot in the Senate. So we, we expect a, a little bit of fireworks when this, when this bill gets to the Senate. And here's a red headline that just crossed the Bloomberg terminal that the FDA has said that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine uh, benefits outweigh the risks. So some more positive news on this Friday uh, on the vaccination front. Let's stick with stimulus as we await the transportation secretary uh, to join us. Uh, I've got sound on this from uh, leader Kevin Mc... I, I don't have a sound on this from leader Kevin McCarthy, 
I was just told. But uh, Leader McCarthy, I'll read the quote that I have in front of me. He said, quote, uh, Jeannie, this is for the progressive wing of the party who says they will not vote for the bill unless they have that in there. He's referring to the, the minimum wage. That's why I'll be voting no on the Pelosi payoff bill. Republicans feel like this is a winning argument, Jeannie, that they can go against uh, the uh, the stimulus. They're, they're not they're not too concerned about these polls. They think that at the end of the day, in, in, a, in a year or two, uh, that, that this will come back to haunt Democrats. It, and they're thinking that particularly of the members in the House, although not not solely, because their base and the people who will be getting out in the midterm do have issues with this bill. I think it is a I think it is a win for Joe Biden that the parliamentarian took out the minimum wage. I'm curious. Why? Let me press you on this. Why? I think so, because I think then they're going to try to either do a standalone, which would allow him to make the case for perhaps compromising, which he wants to do to an $11 with the E-Verify. You know, that, that we have two proposals now that he could potentially, they Democrats could work with. I understand progressives won't be happy about that, but he may be able to get the 60 there, which would be, I think, a big win for him. And then there's also this backdoor idea that Bernie Sanders and Ron Wyden and some of the other progressives in the Senate support, which would be to give incentive to small companies and to penalize big companies who don't pay $15 minimum wage. I think Manchin and some of the moderates may be skeptical there, but they do have some options. But my thought is that this is a win for Biden because this bill was not probably not going to get through if that was included in it. And I think that administration was aware of that. Well, and, and even to your point, Jeannie, I mean, I, I've got Jen Jacobs, my friend, Jen Jacobs, uh, reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal, which she reports, quote, senior executives from more than 150 companies uh, are voicing support for President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus package in a letter to congressional leaders urging them to pass coronavirus relief. So it, it goes from David Solomon of Goldman, Stephen Schwartzman of Blackstone, Sundar Pakai of Google. I mean, these are heavy hitters. And they write, quote, Congress should act swiftly and on a bipartisan basis to authorize a stimulus and relief package along the lines of the Biden-Harris administration's proposed American rescue plan. I mean, that right there, uh, Rick Davis, uh, is is really, you know, the, the private sector wants this just as much as, as the middle class and, and lower middle class wants this. So yeah, I don't know, I think, what are I mean, you're the you're our go to Republican guru. What are the Republicans seeing that we're not seeing? Well, I think that uh, they're playing politics for 2022 or 2024, depending upon who they are. And and they just have it on faith that this big spending package, they can demonize um, both Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer and ultimately Joe Biden. Uh, the problem is it, they're not reading the polling data. I mean, this is a wildly. Uh, popular measure that the Biden administration is promoting. Sixty uh, percent uh, of Republicans think it's a good idea. Uh, a much yeah. higher percentage of Democrats right. and, and independents. All right. We go now to the White House, where Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg joins us via telephone. Mr. Secretary, thank you for joining us. A big night uh, for the administration as the House of Representatives uh, votes to uh, pass uh, this $1.9 trillion stimulus uh, bill. Uh, but I got to be candid. It heads to the Senate, where the minimum wage increase is not going to be included because of that Senate parliamentary ruling. Uh, are you still 
uh, optimistic that it could eventually be included, if not in this stimulus bill, in another vehicle? Well, what we know, what we know is the American people want this. Uh, it's good for the economy. It's good for workers. It's good for families. And so uh, uh, we remain committed to this as a matter of policy. And, you know, whatever the mechanics are uh, on Capitol Hill, bottom line is it's going to uh, make a big difference. And it's a good idea. Uh, in the meantime, we are pursuing this rescue plan that is just so important at a moment when uh, we are a long way from being out of the woods. We have got to get uh, doses of vaccine out to sites. We've got to get shots in arms. And we've got to get checks out to families. Uh, a, uh, an abundantly bipartisan majority of the American people want this to be done. Uh, we're hoping that will amount to a bipartisan majority on Capitol Hill, too. And just, just to stay on the, the issue of the minimum wage, just for a, a follow-up, do you think that Democrats should abolish the filibuster? And if so, what would that mean for the rest of Biden's agenda if they don't? Now, I'll let the president speak to that. Uh, what we know is that, uh, again, we're talking about things that the American people want. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can, you can only uh, face down the American people for so long when they say loud and clear that these kinds of policy changes are needed. This is part of why the American people chose Joe Biden to be president, camp- campaigning on uh, a promise to deliver this kind of relief and support for American families. And that's why we have such optimism that it will be able, uh, even in Washington, to carry the day. As you look in this particular plan, one of the issues that I think has not been covered enough is is the effect that the stimulus would have on veterans. You've obviously served uh, in uh, the military, but just we talk so much, especially on this program, about the effect that the the this has on the private sector, on small businesses, on Main Street, the debate about minimum wage for restaurants. But how will this stimulus bill directly affect veterans who have been absolutely crushed by this uh, economic downturn? Well, that's exactly right. You look at the economic hardship, unemployment rates, things that veterans are up against. And, uh, you know, veterans are are Americans who have given so much to this country, deserve uh, for this country to uh, take care of them, too, to make sure that uh, this is a country that is economically strong, just as they've put their lives on the line, to make sure that uh, this country is physically strong. And uh, whether we're talking about the public health benefits, the educational benefits, or uh, the simple cash benefits that are clearly needed, uh, that are, again, wildly popular in terms of bipartisan support among the American people. Uh, It feels to us like a no-brainer for Congress to act. Secretary Buttigieg, you know, prior, obviously, to to your uh, becoming secretary, you were the former South Bend mayor. uh, And, and, you know, when you put it through that perspective of the heartland uh, and and some of these economic uh, dire needs of of small businesses, I'm curious if you think that they would be able to afford or whether there needs to be more done in terms of retraining for for emerging industries. So many, unfortunately, of these industries that have been ravaged by the pandemic, the data suggests that they're just not going to come back, or if they do come back, it's going to be a sliver of what they were. Uh, Is there enough money in this stimulus for retraining for the middle class? Well, when it comes to retraining, my, my answer is yes, but yes, we've got to do it. We've got to make sure that we're preparing workers for the jobs that are going to be growing because uh, we know the 2020s are going to be full of technological and economic change. The but is that uh, retraining is not enough. Uh, we've also got to make sure that we're supporting workers and working families, uh, not just in terms of the immediate mechanics of, of getting the next job, but uh, being able to be healthy and in thriving communities. The rescue plan, let's be clear, is just that. This is a rescue plan. This is in order to make sure that the economy and the country and families get through this dark season 
and survive. It is uh, the first and not the last statement about the broader vision that the president was elected to deliver, which is to build back better. And, uh, you know, once we have been able to deliver this rescue plan, which is our our total focus right now as an administration, then there's an opportunity to zoom out, to look at a bigger picture, and to look in particular at the ways where, frankly, we have been disinvesting as a country for a good 40 years or so, are paying the price, but don't have to do it the old way anymore. And uh, I expect that you'll see a lot of uh, discussion and a lot of action going into this question of uh, how to make sure workers are ready. You look at my area alone, transportation, and some of the things that might be happening in terms of automation, electrification, you know, that can put a lot of jobs in danger, but it can also create a lot of jobs if and only if we're making the investments to make sure American workers win. Let me let me follow up on that on that job creation and from not only from a domestic standpoint but from a geopolitical one. What disadvantage is the United States at if it loses its its ground and or cedes its ground to other countries like China, for example, Mr. Secretary, where they are continuing to make those investments not just in their own infrastructure but in their digital infrastructure as well? Our strategic competitors are wasting no time in making these investments, and they're not stupid. <laughs> they're doing it because they know it makes them more competitive. And if we're not doing it, it makes us less competitive. We've got to invest in human capital just as we've got to invest in physical infrastructure and recognize that infrastructure for the future means things like digital infrastructure, broadband. We've got to treat our national airspace as a piece of infrastructure, even if it's not as, uh, as tangible, something you can grab hold of. And uh, we will absolutely be left behind if we don't. So this is the season where we've got to decide whether the U.S. will lead the world or whether we're just another country. So when Republicans say they don't want to bail out blue states, you say what? This is about Americans, and the president doesn't see blue Americans and red Americans. He sees, and we see in this Biden-Harris administration, an American people who are going to rise and fall together. Uh, and by the way, our state and local governments have often had to do a heroic job just of keeping the lights on, of meeting those actual everyday needs. Uh, you know, I, I think of this as a mayor where we didn't have the option to shut down uh, the government because we were in charge of things that you literally need in order to live, like drinking water. We've got to support those local and state governments, and the president's committed to doing just that. All right, just a, two more questions for you, Mr. Secretary. I know it's a Friday. I know it's it's been a long week. There's a huge vote in just a couple of hours. Uh, you were on the Hill earlier this week. You testified uh, before the Senate Commerce uh, Committee, and you were asked about whether or not the gas tax could be included as a mechanism uh, for infrastructure. Is this something that's on the table? You know, the president's made a commitment that uh, this administration will not raise taxes on people making less than $400,000 a year. And so that rules out uh, approaches like the old-fashioned gas tax. What we do know is that we've got to come up with uh, revenues that are going to be sustainable, that are going to be predictable, and that are going to be robust enough to get us the highway infrastructure that we need. And look, uh, uh, whatever happens in, in the short term in terms of our reliance on the gas tax, let's remember that cars are using less gas and eventually no gas as electric vehicles uh, kick in. So sooner or later, we're going to have to think in a more long-term way uh, about how we fund our road infrastructure, and there's no time like the present. Some of us aren't even using cars. Some of us are using bikes. I don't tweet that much anymore, Mr. Secretary, but I am aware of what goes viral. And I got to tell you, you have been going viral and you were criticized. I, I say it respectfully. You were uh -oh. criticized for by bike Twitter because you were riding your bike. He doesn't do the, the car. He, he, he was doing the bike share back to his, his home and they said that your seat was too low. And I'm just <laughs> curious if you're going <laughs> to... 
<laughs> I'm curious if you're going to weigh in on this. And then from a serious standpoint, did you have any ideas about expanding access to bike shares? Or I don't know, you are the transportation secretary now. You know, maybe you had a maybe you had a thought while you were, were while you were pedaling. Yeah, so uh, you know, I'm I'm a big believer not only in making sure that our uh, cars are greener, but also that people have different alternatives to get around, and and making our communities more bikeable is part of that. And I, I realized, uh, actually, I was going through my HR paperwork, coming on as an employee, <laughs> like everybody else, and and there was a sheet in there to let me know there's a employee benefit uh, that we have a kind of a group membership in the Capital Bike Share program where you can rent a bike from any one of these convenient stations around town, and and so I thought I might as well practice what I preach, and uh, go home that way, especially since it was a pretty nice evening. So uh, I've done it a couple times this week and and took advantage of of that program. And look, this is a really important part of how people uh, can and should get around. It's it's, it's, uh, cleaner, greener, healthier, and in many cases more economical. And and we've got to make sure our cities and and, and communities are uh, set up for this. It's one more area where I I hate to see America behind uh, other countries and other cities. So you'll you'll see me out there uh, preaching the the virtues of uh, of biking to work and biking around for sure. But, you know, bike Twitter wasn't wrong. I was uh, in a little (laughs) bit of a hurry to get home. I was a little bit lazy about adjusting the seat, and uh, it was admittedly... (laughs) Not exactly where it ought to be for an efficient ride. Secretary Buttigieg, thank you so much, sir, for your time. I appreciate it. You know, breaking down all the important issues from the gas tax <laughs> to to the, the, the appropriate uh, seat height. That is the Secretary of Transportation who gets around on bike via or bike uh, or car. Uh, joining us now for complete analysis is our Bloomberg All-Star Policy Panel of Bloomberg Politics Contributors. Rick Davis and Jeannie Zeno. Rick Davis, I mean, I thought he made some news there on the gas tax. He walked back a comment that he made uh, on the uh, that he testified before the Senate yep. Commerce Committee. Yeah, in the hearing, uh, it sounded like that was a, a deal on the table, and and I think he he walked it back with a, a proper rationalization. It's a regressive tax. If you don't want to tax people under a certain uh, income limit, you're you're going to have to do away with things like gas tax. It, it will raise an interesting debate. Is so now what are you going to do in an EV world? You know, are you going to start, you know, cu- you know, picking up the tax at the uh, charging station? Yeah, right. And and I think especially as as another infrastructure battle uh, goes forward, another infrastructure battle goes forward. A genie, Zeno, that is really going to be one of the the key issues. And and, and in an election midterm cycle, uh, that gas tax is going to be incredibly controversial, uh, but really interesting to hear the position that Secretary Buttigieg put forth. Really important that he walked that back tonight. And I think that is big news coming out of this, certainly. Um, You know, it's unclear to me from based on his hearings, uh, his confirmation hearings, um, where the Republicans are going to come down. They keep saying they support an infrastructure bill. They look forward to future discussions, but they have disagreements. You know, it was unclear to me during the hearings what those disagreements are. And in your discussion with him, he laid out several things that he would like to see happen. My question is the one you're raising about the tax, uh, the gas taxes. How are we going to pay for that, particularly after this one point nine trillion if it does pass COVID relief bill? And I think that's where the rubber is going to hit the road. And that's why I think it's so important about the gas tax. Well, it's and it's hugely important in terms of whether or not they're going to be able to find revenue to pay for infrastructure at a time in which they're likely going to pass a nearly two trillion dollar economic stimulus bill. And again, just to reset here, a major red headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal. I alluded to this at the top of the show, but here it is again. Uh, the FDA advisors say that Johnson and Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine 
benefits outweigh the risks. Again, FDA advisors say the J&J COVID-19 vaccine benefits outweigh the risks. So some positive news uh, on the vaccination front. Uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting to talk to a cabinet secretary just before a major policy vote in the House of Representatives, Rick. And, you know, they want to make no mistakes. They want to make no errors. They just want to get this thing over to the finish line. But behind the scenes, uh, there is actually a sigh of relief that the administration is breathing that the Senate parliamentarian, Elizabeth McDonough, has really made the wage increase issue a non-issue in the sense that they're able to move on from this, Rick, and they're not and they don't have to have an open debate where Democrats are divided because Senator Cinema, as well as Senator Manchin, has come out against it. Yeah, I think that uh, they 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 got a favor, right? I mean, it, it, they can decry it as saying, oh, gee, you know, this isn't a fair. We wanted to have a vote on this. The progressive wing was looking for a fight on this. Uh, it's obviously going to pass in the in the bill tonight in the House. But uh, by the parliamentarian uh, determining that it doesn't meet budget requirements, uh, it just takes it completely off the table. So there won't even be a debate about this. There, there will be debates about what other things they can do to try and affect uh, minimum wage. And maybe there is, as Jeannie was saying earlier in the show, a, an effort toward a standalone bill. But at this stage, you're going to have a completely different discussion in the Senate as soon as the House passes this bill. And, and, and then you'll have to reconcile the two two bills. It, Senate bill will not have this in it, and the House bill will. And so when it goes to conference, they're going to have to do some serious horse trading because there's a big dollar difference between the two bills, if that's the case. And to follow up on that, Rick, there is a big difference between the two. And I thought it was really important, Kevin asked about the filibuster, because that's another issue, right? If they want a standalone minimum wage bill, you either got to compromise and get the 60 or you can move on the filibuster. And I am curious to see if there is any support for that in the administration. Um, there is some support for that in Congress and particularly amongst progressives. But I think that is going to continue to be raised throughout this process. Well, Jeannie, and as you know, uh, there is a deal between uh, former Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and, and current Majority Leader Schumer that they won't break that rule. And so is, are we going to see in the first year open rebellion against the rules that they set at the beginning? You know what they say about deals? I was going to say, can they trust each other Deals are made now? to be broken. <laughs> Just kidding. That's what they say in Delco, but not anymore. I, I'm, I'm, I'm true to my word. Hey, Rick Davis, do you, have you ever, have you ever uh, used a bike share? Uh, yeah, I have in New York. I almost lost my life, so I'll probably never do it again. <laughs> Rick, got to wear a helmet, buddy. Yeah. Got to get him on a helmet. What about a scooter? Does Rick Davis get around town on a scooter? I had a scooter. Uh, before they were electrified, I had the ones you push with your feet and almost killed myself with that, too. So I'm just a two-foot man. I, I stay <laughs> embedded to the ground. I'm not trying any new transportation. <laughs> What about you, Jeannie? Scooter? I am not a scooter or a bike person. I'm sorry, Kevin. No, to you and the, gotta, the secretary. <laughs> I, I flip-flopped on that. I used to hate the scooters. Now I love them. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. You ever just get to a Friday and you're like, thank you? <laughs> That's where I'm at. I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied none other than our Bloomberg Policy All-Star panel, Rick Davis and Jeannie Sean Zeno. And I got to say, it's a, it, takes, it takes more than a village. It's Matt Shirley, Christine Barada, our, our producer and executive producer, and of course, We've got Dardan, as I call him. Dardan has been sent down here to help us as well. And we've been, Dardan Pulla, we've been having a, a great time as we've been putting together these shows on these Fridays. And let me tell you, it's it, doing it virtually. It's interesting. Enough about us, because it's all about you. Let's talk geopolitics. Um, huge developments, Rick Davis, on the, Saudi, uh, on the Saudi front. I mean, I'm diving into the Bloomberg Terminal. We finally got this Jamal Khashoggi report that came out the intelligence report that was released earlier today. And it, 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 here's the report. Quote, Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, signed off on the killing of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, according to the U.S. Intel report. I'm going to read from the report. Quote, we assess that Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, approved an operation in Istanbul, Turkey, to capture or kill Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The report builds on classified intel from the CIA and other agencies after Khashoggi's murder in October 2018 inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Why does this matter from a geopolitical standpoint, Rick Davis? Well, Saudi Arabia has been our most uh, reliable partner in the Middle East. Uh, they've stood with us in uh, two Gulf Wars in the last 25 years. And uh, and the, the regime has supported even our uh, policies related to hydrocarbons. So... Um, for a long time, they've been someone we could rely on. Uh, the question of reliability is now very clear. Uh, can we trust uh, the Crown Prince, uh, MBS, to uh, be able to manage a country in a way that we find meets our values and our standards? And what this report tells us is that he hasn't done it to date. You know, Jeannie, especially as we, we talk about Iran and coming up, we're going we're gonna to talk about Syria. But to stay on, on Saudi for a second, uh, it, because of the new relationship between the Israelis and the Saudis, uh, this report could have significant reverberations through the region. It, it absolutely does have significant reverberations. And I think it also is having reverberations within the Democratic Party and here at home in particular. Let's not forget that during the campaign, Joe Biden candidate called Saudi Arabia a pariah state with no redeeming social value. You fast forward now, he's 35 days into his administration, and he is getting pushback significant on a decision not to penalize the, the prince. And I think there is reason to do that, but I we also know that people on the Democratic side in particular, civil libertarians, human rights folks, they are not going to be happy about a decision not to hold the prince and the Saudi Arabia accountable, and obviously for all the reasons that Rick just laid out. 
All right. Meanwhile, another major development uh, overnight. The Biden administration has taken their first military action with strikes on Syria militias. Uh, Jordan Fabian and Tony Capaccio report on the Bloomberg Terminal, quote, the U.S. carried out airstrikes in eastern Syria overnight on sites connected to Iranian-backed groups believed to be involved in recent attacks in Iraq. This is the first overt use of military force under President Biden. The assault came after a series of rocket attacks in recent days on facilities in Iraq used by the United States, including one that killed a contractor working with the U.S.-led coalition in the country. At least 22 Iraqi militants allied or allied with Iran were killed and three ammunition trucks were destroyed in the attack. I, I mean, Rick Davis, uh, you know, as this intensifies uh, and as the Iraq situation, and it's, it's in many ways a, a reversal from the type of strategy that we've seen in the previous administration. But just walk us through the significance of this first attack on behalf of Biden. Yeah, everybody's going to scrutinize this because it's his first uh, command uh, uh, as a commander in chief to the military to use uh, lethal weapons uh, in another country. Uh, it, it is very tied into, Kevin, the entire debate around Iran and their nuclear weapons. I mean, one, you have to wonder what Iran is doing, sponsoring these groups that are attacking U.S. servicemen if they're actually looking for engagement with this administration. It's almost like a test. How far can we push them? His response showed just how far you cannot push him. And so, you know, the proxy debate here is really Iran, not Syria and Iraq. And so the question is, does this attack now set back or does it level set the debate that the administration's trying to have with Iran on nuclear weapons? And to your point, by, by striking the facility in Syria, the U.S. avoids raising tensions if they were to have striked Iran um, who they're at this point, Jeannie, trying to persuade to come back to the negotiation table. And they've had a little bit of you know, difficulty in trying to, to do that. It's, it's interesting. I think it was a smart decision that it was, you know, a scaled down attack. As you mentioned, it wasn't in Iran. It was meant to, you know, not escalate the situation, if you will. And obviously, we are just at the very early stages of this administration. I think we can't forget that most of the people working on this in Joe Biden's administration have been at this for many, many years as part of the Obama administration. And I think very, very soon we're going to be asking questions, the press, academics and others. What is the strategy here vis-a-vis -vis Iran? Are we entering back into this deal? What is going to happen here? And I don't think we've had answers to that yet. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and it'll be fascinating. All right, coming up, I dream a lot about California. I, when I was a kid, I wanted to live in California. So we're going to go interview the former San Diego mayor, Kevin Faulkner, who is challenging Governor Newsom. He wants there to be, he wants there to be a, uh, a recall against Governor Newsom. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, along with Bloomberg political contributors Jeannie Zeno and Rick Davis. It's a rough week for some governors, Governor Cuomo, Governor Newsom, uh, and I guess Senator Ted Cruz after the whole Cancun thing. But I, I want to focus in on California, uh, Jeannie. I mean, for Governor Newsom, he, he really could be recalled in a state uh, that I know folks listening who aren't familiar with California politics are thinking California would never flip. Well, Arnold Schwarzenegger was a Republican 
and candidly, uh, Republican politics in California are are not the same like they are down at Mar-a-Lago. Jeannie. And it's interesting because Arnold Schwarzenegger, the last Republican to be elected statewide in California, was in 2006, I believe. And he was first elected, as we re- we remember, in a recall election. So, yeah. you know, if this recall goes forward and it seems to be picking up momentum, to your point, it's a real possibility. And we should also note that the Republican candidates in the House who got some Democratic seats last year, there has been a case that they have been more diverse than in previous years. And so there may be momentum there, although I'm curious to see um, what Kevin Faulkner has to say about some of the differences in the California Republican Party, because there is some infighting there, like there is nationwide between the moderates and the conservatives. But even to, 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 to that point precisely, I mean, Faulkner, Mayor Faulkner of San Diego, when he was first elected, you know, about a decade ago, he did not give the RNC radio address. He tried to distance himself at the time from uh, the the party because in, in San Diego that wouldn't play well. Rick Davis, and he's a, he's not. I think it's almost unfair to call the guy a Republican because he's just so. I mean, he is a Republican, but he's he's not the way that Rick Davis and I and and Jeannie talk about Republicans. Is he, uh, Rick Davis? Well, he is a classic old school California politician, right? He opposes he's for gun control. <laughs> That's a better he, way. That's a better way to say it. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, he's 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 for abortion rights. He supports ethnic diversity. I mean, this guy is uh, typical of the Republicans that represented the state and statewide successes we had with you know Governor Duke Majin and Pete Wilson and people like that. So he, he is old school California GOP. The problem that he's got is that the new school California GOP is hard right Trump conservatism. They've made the party much smaller. They have fewer representatives every year. And so the question is, Who's going to hold the keys to the future elections? Uh, as you point out, uh, Gray Davis was thrown out of the governorship by the last uh, time we, they had a recall, and Arnold Schwarzenegger took advantage of it because you didn't need more than a plurality. And he, in Arnold's first election, he won by 48%. You could have the next governor, uh, especially depending on how many people run, uh, elected with far less than 50% of the vote. All right, well, let's bring in the other Kev for this conversation, the former mayor of San Diego, Kevin Faulkner. It's great to to talk with you, uh, Mr. Mayor. I want to start with schools because that's been the big issue nationwide that I think people are wondering is when can kids, when when are the schools going to be reopened? You've been really aggressive in terms of your criticism uh, against the Democrats in California uh, saying reopen the schools. Yeah, I have, Kevin. And, and look, I, I believe that schools should be open now, not next month, uh, right now. And I say that, you know, not just as a, as a candidate for governor, but as a father with two kids in, in public schools, uh, you know, a computer screen is no substitute for a classroom. And look, the, the fact that California is one of the states that has not opened its public schools, the fact that private schools are open in California and teachers are safely teaching, kids are safely learning in the classroom. Look, there's absolutely no reason why California public schools have not been open except for failed leadership coming out of the governor's office. You know, I do want to also ask you about some of the economic economic developments in your state, because Governor Newsom had unveiled a portion of his budget 
uh, in which he called for there to be a zero emission vehicle infrastructure, $1.5 billion worth. You've said that in the middle of the pandemic and a deep recession, California's highest priority should not be zero emission vehicles. Uh, why? Well, look, because I, I think it's incredibly important that we focus on getting our economy back on track and supporting our businesses that have been affected by the pandemic, particularly our small and medium-sized businesses. And I was very vocal as, as mayor that one of the things that I worried about the most is that when we get on the other side of this pandemic, and we will, but that when we get in the other side, that folks actually have jobs to go back to. Um, and, you know, we talk so much about, unfortunately, California being anti-competitive. We should be doing everything we can to promote California jobs, promote California companies, not overregulate and focus on getting people back to work and, and being very good at the basics. And when we do that, we're going to grow our economy. But that has not, unfortunately, been the focus uh, here under Governor Newsom. Um, Mayor Rick Davis, uh, first of all, I want to thank you for your stewardship of San Diego. San Diego. I actually have a condo in Coronado, so I, I, I really watch the goings on in San Diego politics. And uh, this is the first I'm hearing of this. Go uh, ahead, Rick. Well, I haven't been there in a long time, but uh, but uh, thank you for your management of the city. It's one of the best uh, cities in the face of the earth. So uh, well done. Uh, talk about your future a little bit. Uh, you've got uh, a uh, a recall going on where you know they've uh, think almost coming up on 1.5 million signatures, just a couple hundred thousand yeah. more, and uh, and and there's a recall of uh, of uh, the governor. Um, uh, how's it looking in the campaign so far? Well, no, thank you, Rick. And uh, look, I, I I think there's no doubt that the recall is going to qualify here in California. The the threshold is uh, 1.5 million ballot signatures. They're already up to 1.8. I think they'll get close to 2 million. They're, they're getting about 100,000 a week right now. And what you are seeing in California is widespread disconnect. And it's not just Republicans. It's Republicans, Democrats, independents. You know, families whose kids are in school. Business owners have been you know, locked up, shut down, open and closed four and five times. So look, I, I think there's no doubt that we get into a recall situation. And I think what people are going to be looking for, uh, and obviously I'm a little biased, but somebody that has the experience uh, and results on issues that Californians care about. And, you know, as a mayor with, with two terms who you know, actually had to get results and proud of what we did on some of the key issues, you know, just a, a couple of quick ones. Uh, I think one of the biggest ones that we're seeing in California is the issue of homelessness. We were the only big city in California where homelessness went down in San Diego, down by double digits. And unfortunately, you're seeing it explode in other places across our state. Um, the governor's given a lot of lip service to that, but, but no action. We took dramatic action in San Diego, made a huge difference. I did not, I repeat, I did not allow tent encampments on our sidewalks in San Diego. Why? Because we care about people. We care about you enough not to let you die in our streets and our sidewalks. So the change that we made is something we're going to have to replicate Statewide. I'm going to take that same approach, that problem-solving approach. You don't, you don't have the luxury when you're mayor to just stand up and virtue signal all day and not get anything done. You have to get results, so you're, you're not going to be mayor too long of your city. I got two quick questions for you. The first is, can you win a recall if there is a, tr a, a, a pro-Trump candidate like a Rick Rennell? Uh, yes, look, we're going to. I think you're going to have a lot of candidates jump in in a, in a recall scenario. And again, what what I think that people are looking for in California 
It's somebody who can actually get results. I mean, I paved half the streets in San Diego during my tenure as mayor, and I did it with a focus on infrastructure without raising taxes. And so, and you know, we, you talk about the business climate and growing our jobs and companies. I did that a lot mm. in San Diego. So I, I think what people are looking for, I think they're less concerned with an R or a D next to your name, but actually, can you get the job done? And I think if you can demonstrate that you can do that, I mean, that's how you win in California. You have and to it's get Friday. It's Friday, and I gotta ask you this because I did my homework on you. And you ran, you ran with the Bulls once in your life, and I've just, I, I've always wanted to do that. What was that like? <laughs> I have not gotten that question. <laughs> uh, exactly, indeed, but but I'm gonna ask it. It was, it. <laughs> it was uh, phenomenal, and I was scared as hell. So how's that for an answer? <laughs> so maybe you're up for a recall if you can run with the bulls why not why not run against you know a trump candidate a democratic governor who knows who knows what'll happen thank you so much mr mayor come back on and talk with us anytime uh february's black history month and we're honoring black history and here with today's installment is bloomberg's renita young on this day in black history in 1966, Andrew Bremer becomes the first black governor appointed to the Federal Reserve Board. Born the son of sharecroppers, Bremer was an economist and a renowned expert on monetary policy, capital markets, and international finance. While he was a doctoral student at Harvard University, he worked as an economist for the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. He also traveled to the Sudan and Africa to establish a central bank. During the administrations of President John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson, Bremer served as assistant Secretary of Economic Affairs in the Department of Commerce. After his stint on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, Bremer took a teaching post at Harvard, then established the consulting firm Bremer & Company. That's Today in Black History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. Thank you to our team. Thank you to Rick Davis. Thank you to Jeannie Sean Zeno. Thank you to you for listening. Have a great weekend. Be safe. Stay positive. Be grateful. I'm talking to myself. And on Monday, we've got Congressman Katko. And former rep Joe Crowley. You don't want to miss that. Kako is the top Republican on Homeland Security. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.